Delivered by Azari with splendid aplomb, the new season demonstrates how important the actual presence of baseball as engaged and on the field or seen from the announcer's booth has been to the show. That's from Mike Hale, the New York Times, talking about Brackmire, which is on IFC Season 4. The final season continues as we continue here on Cinephile. Thanks so much to everybody, as always, for supporting us. I can't thank you enough during these uh, unsettling times how much of an outlet this is for me, how nice it is to kibitz with Joe and to be able to talk about the movies and TV shows that we love. So thank you, thank you, thank you. And please do pass the love forward by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, rate and review. I do have a scathing review I'm going to read in just a second I just saw. So as always, equal opportunists. As far as movies, listen, Brockmar, I'm going to talk about the TV show because it's the only current thing I'm watching, but we're going to the Wayback Machine here, okay? A Simple Plan's a great Billy Bob Thornton movie from 1998. Deep Cover, Lawrence Fishburne, Jeff Goldblum, drug movie. Silver Streak, I'd never seen a Richard Pryor, Gene Wilder, another Richard Pryor movie called Blue Collar, Harvey Keitel and James Toback's Fingers. I just saw that on TCM and Alec Baldwin gives one of his best performances in a movie called The Cooler. All that more coming up, plus Mount Rushmore in honor, I don't know what the jumping off point was, but I think it was one of the movies we have with just one title, right? So the protagonist's last name as the title. How's that for Mount Rushmore? Protagonist's last name as the title. So think about it. You got Capone, Capote, Chaplin, Cobb, and that's just the C's. And as far as Total Recall is concerned, we're going to do the Oscars from 1991. That's for films from 1990, when you guessed it, Dances with Wolves. What a travesty. That one best picture. Uh, we'll get to all that in just a second. Joe, first and foremost, how is bed treating you? bed treating me pretty good. Uh, you know, it's, I, what can I say? Right now, everyone's just trying to go about their daily lives, but I'm still trying to get out and explore the neighborhood a little bit. The move went good. Thank you for asking. But all in all, people are healthy and good over here in bed Brooklyn. What about you? I was going to say, do you know where Do the Right Thing was actually filmed? Like, if we, when, when all this is over, we have to get together. I want, I want to take a walking tour of where Do the Right Thing was actually shot. I do know it is pretty close to here. Let me, if I look it up right now, I think it's about, it's about 4.45 miles from where I'm living right now. So we're in the ballpark. So come over to Bed-Stuy. We'll go to the where they filmed uh, Do the Right Thing, and we can do something for Cinephile. I love it, man. I love it. We'll just I'll bring my boombox. I'll play some Public Enemy. We'll be good to go. Uh, here's a couple of reviews. This is from Ant- Anti-Millennial Millennial. I like the handle. Great movie pod. Thank you to you and Joe for new content during this unsettling time. Love the Total Recall and Mount Rushmore segments. Best attribute is that I know Adnan knows more about movies. Is so well-connected in the industry, but he never sounds like a stereotypical movie-slash-entertainment critic, but someone you could argue with about movies at the bar on a long road trip. Job well done, boys. Keep it up. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Anti-millennial millennial. millennial. Uh, As well here from KDMDJD. Uh, still love Adnan. Irishman was top five last year. Been a fan for years. But your take on Lady of a Portrait on Fire was so rough. I watched it almost immediately. Had to watch it again. Best movie of last year. Even knowing it's not your cup of tea. Appreciate the incredible filmmaking. The most beautiful film I've ever seen. That last shot. And then the first shot. Heartbreaking. Listen, I can be wrong, okay? That can happen. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. My friend Sam loved it. Maybe I was wrong. Sydney Dean. Smart and funny. Cinephile provides the best insight reviews in the industry while not being pompous like many others. I followed Adnan since his early ESPN days. Find him an easy listen with a witty sense of humor. Thank you, Sam in New Jersey. And then the cutthroat review from Georgia Movie Guy. Two stars. So once again, I rank my movies out of Maple Leafs, four Maple Leafs. Please do rank us out of five stars. That would keep going. But Georgia Movie Guy goes two stars. 
I've followed the Audience Movie Podcast since the ESPN days. Unfortunately, I've lost my enthusiasm as time has gone on. Adnan seems to be reading from printed reviews, including when he gives his own thoughts and his Scorsese love is really over the top. His producer doesn't seem to have seen many of the movies being discussed and even mispronounces some pretty common names from the film world. Scathing review. First of all, I don't print any reviews. I just ad lib. Joe sends me the plot synopsis for movies, which I'm clearly reading. And then when I'm talking about the movies, my own reviews, that is all from the heart. I wish I could give you a, a live stream. If you want me to do an IG live like my buddy Scott Regasso, you can see I have no notes here. I'm just talking. So I'm clearly... When I'm reading from reviews, those are actual critics who I love and appreciate. I'm trying to give a different perspective, and that's it. So you're wrong there. Uh, Scorsese low over the top, probably true. Uh, Joe's seen a lot of movies, just doesn't necessarily see what I watch. So listen, this is a harsh review. I appreciate the review, but that's a little harsh, Joe. Yeah, I mean, you can't please everyone all the time. And if we were, we were doing something wrong here. All I got to say to Georgia Movie Guys, it's called Spellcheck, bro, Okay. You can it, just take two seconds to review the paragraph before you hit send, and you know I give your review two stars, all right? <laughs> exactly. We should be able to dish it out as well. All right. Let's dig in, folks. Yeah. Brockmire. Uh, Brockmire follows Jim Brockmire. It's going to be tough to save this synopsis without using the Hank Azaria voice, so I'll do it. A famed Major League Baseball announcer who suffers an embarrassing and very public meltdown on the air after discovering his beloved wife's serial infidelity. A decade later, he decides to reclaim his career and love life in a small town, calling minor league ball for the Morristown Frackers. In the second season, Brockbauer becomes a play-by-play announcer for the AAA New Orleans Crawdaddies. This is one of those shows It's so bad in terms of the profanity and the vulgarity that it's so good. It's quite simply the best work of Hank Azaria's career. He's a two-time guest here in Cinephile. Great guy. Very funny. Very charming. And this character, he nails it. I mean, he's one of those guys that can play anyone. And certainly his voice talent is so strong. I mean, he must voice like a dozen people on The Simpsons. And we're not even talking about the Apu uh, controversy. But Azaria fits the role like a glove. You can tell it's one of those characters, you know, maybe based on Vin Scully, uh, a voice like Honeysuckle, but a guy who is engaged in alcoholism and infidelity and all the rest of it. But Azaria makes the character so good. And Joel Church Cooper gets a lot of credit for it. He's the creator for it. Um, I just think it's a show. Obviously, I watch it because it's about baseball, and that's why I first got attention to it when I was at ESPN working on baseball tonight. Tim Kirchner appears in an episode. Joe Buck is in a few episodes. Very funny. So the role fits Hank Azaria like a glove. Honestly, he's such a talented actor. You look at his voice work specifically, a dozen roles in The Simpsons. You know, forget about the Apu controversy, but two-time guest here on Cinephile, and he does the character so well. You can imagine this guy being like a Vin Scully-type character. Hey, how are you guys doing today? Hope you enjoyed a wonderful day at the park today. But then, of course, he's got this alcoholism and the drug use and serial uh, philandering and all the rest of it. And it's full credit to Azaria for launching into the character and the creator, Joel Church Cooper, Supporting cast includes Amanda Peet and many others. And season four is quite different. I, I didn't actually watch season three, but season four now, they've gone in the future. It's now 2030. And to give you an example of how the crudity continues, at one point, uh, Mr. Brockmar excuses himself to go to Mr. McGorham's masturbatorium where he asks Anne Margaret to sit on his face. I mean, that's, that's the kind of humor you're looking at here. So it's not for everybody, but... I mean, even he had one joke the other day where he talked about something was a bad idea. He's now the commissioner, by the way, of Major League Baseball. In the future, baseball has now waned considerably. Now they're looking to Brockmar to change things up. And he talks about being commissioner. He goes, this might be the worst idea since I went to that Scientology jazz brunch. So the show's got plenty of one-liners like that. 
Terrell Jackson-Williams also really good as Charles, one of the sidekicks. I wouldn't say it's just for baseball lovers, but much like a show like Eastbound and Down, where I think you can have the setting as baseball, and then much like that show, you had an outrageous central character. It's best appreciated by sports lovers, but I don't think it has to be just limited to those. In a perfect world, Azari would finally get an Oscar nomination for the role, but it's one of those shows, even as he has joked on Colbert recently, maybe a month and a half ago before all this happened, saying that it's a show that nobody watches, but critics like it a lot. It's on IFC. IFC currently has a free preview. While we've got the time, I encourage you to check out Brockmeyer. Season four continues right now. The three episodes in, but if you go back to the original, season one is a four Maple Leafs. I'll give season four on three episodes in, probably three Maple Leafs so far, but it's a really funny show, and, and obviously, like I said, I enjoy the fact I've got friends like Tim Kirchner, Joe Buck, and many others in the show. Joe, I don't know if you've seen Brockmeyer, but for a baseball fan like you, you'd appreciate it. I love Hank Azaria. Love everything that he is in. And I love Amanda Peet, who makes one half of the Hollywood power couple. She's married to David Beninoff of uh, Game of Thrones, the creator of Game of Thrones. Nice. Um, but for you, when you saw that they were going to 2030, when I first saw that, it felt like the near distant future, like just way, way down. It felt like a fake year, you know what I mean? But now we're at a time where it's just so close, actually. So I don't know if you felt that way. No, I did too. You're right. When I heard 2030, I'm like, oh my God, that's 30 years away. Like, wait a minute, that's only a decade away. I'm like, oh my God. Because you're right. It's kind of like with Back to the Future 2. You said, wow, at the time you were trying to predict the future, you had flying cars and all this crazy stuff. But some of the stuff Back to the Future 2 did correctly predict, like, uh, Obviously, um, you know, uh, FaceTime, though that was obviously in the movie, and a lot of the stuff with technology. So it's interesting. When I hear 2030, I'm expecting there to be like Martians walking around. But to your point, it's only 10 years from now. So it isn't that much different than the current world we're living in. Yeah, definitely. But I will check it out, and I'm excited for the rest of the season. All right, a couple more reviews here. Steve Green of IndieWire, his thoughts on Brock Meyer. Season four finds the ideal between evoking the debauchery of his past and squaring one man's outsized legend with his more understanding current form. There's a, a subplot about him dealing with his daughter, so I think that's a little bit more tender, at least, here in this fourth season. And Dan Feinberg, a Hollywood reporter, writes, the fourth season of Brock Meyer is actually a tremendous slice of speculative satire a companion piece of sorts to idiocracy and its commentary on the descent of human intellect, our inevitable surrender to encroaching technology. That, once again, is from Dan Feinberg of The Hollywood Reporter. All right, now as far as movies to watch, A Simple Plan is a great movie. If you haven't seen it before, 22nd anniversary. I saw it on uh, my cable package here. I think it was on HBO. Three blue-collar acquaintances come across millions of dollars in lost cash, make a plan to keep their find from the authorities. It isn't long before complications and mistrust weave their way into the plan. Same Raimi is the director. It stars the late Bill Paxton, Bridget Fonda, Brent Briscoe, and... An outstanding Billy Bob Thornton, one of his best performances. He was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. This is a treasure of Sierra Madre for our time. Of course, that classic movie with Humphrey Bogart. We don't need those thinking badges, you know, finding a bunch of gold and money and trying to divvy it up. Well, in this case, it is Paxton and Thornton and Briscoe who find an abandoned plane, find a dead guy inside, ravens come out, and they find $4 million in cash. And what to do with the money? Well, Paxton is the smartest of the three, the most educated. He says, well, I'll hang on to the money, then we'll see what happens. Once the plane gets discovered, you know, let's take it step by step. But they get tripped up step by step. They have to uh, murder somebody. Because, uh, unfortunately, somebody comes snooping around. They have to start lying to each other. And, of course, there's intrigue and duplicity within the group of those three. And the dynamics of Billy Bob Thorne playing the slow-witted character, Jacob, who is a dimwit. But he is obviously close to his brother, Hank, who is the college guy, and Brent Briscoe, who's the local alcoholic. They make fun of him. 
And so this triangle of mistrust becomes fascinating the deeper as the web of deceit continues. And oh, by the way, there's Bridget Fonda playing Lady Macbeth. She's the one pushing Hank further and further deep down this well until Gary Cole, that's right, Gary Cole from Office Space shows up. Is he an FBI agent or is he somebody who's looking to get his gold? It is expertly directed by Sam Raimi. You know his work from Spider-Man and Evil Dead. Well, I believe he's a Trump supporter, but let's leave that part out. Uh, Ramey's obviously an excellent director, and the story's really good. Scott B. Smith wrote the screenplay, adapted his own book. I'd love to read the book because the movie is just so expertly done. It's so taut and so lean. The storytelling is so economical. And like all great movies, you have that feeling of haunting and fear and dread as each step continues. I think it's a sensational thriller, suspense movie. And also, like all great thrillers, Joe... It's one thing to chill you, but it's another thing to move you. And the ending, I will knock it with the climax. Although it's been 22 years, go watch A Simple Plan. It still hits me to the core. It still hits me right in the heart because it's just so sad. And this was a blind spot for me. I don't know how I hadn't seen it to this point, uh, being from Minnesota. But you're right. The, it was a great thriller. Thoroughly enjoyed it. Billy Bob Thornton so good. I'm really glad he didn't try to do a Minnesotan accent. And at first, I thought... Why am I not just watching Fargo? But then as the movie progresses, the story progressed, and they got further into the thick of it, thoroughly enjoyed it. Really, really good movie. Definitely agree with you. I would give it three out of four Maple Leafs for sure. Yeah, I talked to him about it when he was on Cinephile, and I said that scene where he talks, but, you know, if being rich changes that, I'm all for it. The fact he's never kissed a girl before, you know, that people make fun of him. And it's, it's so heartbreaking the way he's able to tap into that. Billy Bob told me, he goes, that was me. I was an awkward guy. I was a shy guy. I was made fun of. You know, I really didn't have much in life. I wanted to be a baseball player. He was a junk ball pitcher growing up in Arkansas. So he was able to tap into some of his own personal turmoil in creating that character. And uh, I mean, there's obviously some great humor in there as well. I mean, the, just even the scene where he goes, hey, Hank, do you see them birds? Do you see all those birds <laughs> flying out? Or even the scene where he's imitating Bill Paxton. I mean, it's a really funny scene that in turns very dark as you can see how... Um, like I said, that mistrust just keeps getting sown and sown. Owen Gleiberman, formerly of Entertainment Weekly, had said a simple plan is lean, elegant, and emotionally complex. A marvel, a backwoods classicism. Glenn Lavella variety. Perfect capers got horribly, inexorably awry. I've always kept audiences squirming. But just when we think we've seen it all, Raimi offers a few new wrinkles. Definitely should you go check it out if you haven't. Quick review here of Deep Cover, which is a drug movie from 1992. A dedicated cop is assigned to go undercover as a dealer to investigate a major drug lord in this intense crime drama. <coughs> Excuse me. He soon forms a partnership with a smooth, connected lawyer, finds himself increasingly tempted by the seductions of the drug world. It stars Lawrence Fishburne and Jeff Goldblum. The reason I mention this movie is we all know this happens to us in life. There's a movie you liked a lot as a kid, and you was, I want to go back and watch it again. And generally speaking, if you haven't rewatched something in a long time, generally speaking, it's not nearly as good as you thought, and that's the case in Deep Cover. Avoid this one. I thought this was like a really smart, penetrating drug crime movie, and when I watched it again, it was kind of hokey. There's these triple cuts, jump cuts that Bill Duke does, which are just brutal. It's um, got over-the-top acting. I mean, Jeff Goldblum's pretty funny as David Jason, but I mean, th there's one scene where one of the gangsters gets murdered, and the guy looks like Groucho Marx, first of all. You cannot take him seriously. He's supposed to be the bad guy. I'm like, are you kidding me? Um, he looks like Groucho Marx with that mustache and his glasses. And the way he gets murdered, I mean, it's so fake and ridiculous. This is one of those, I'm only mentioning as a jumping off point, Joe, perhaps you have a movie that you haven't seen in a long time, you liked a lot as a kid, you go back and see it and you go, what the hell was I thinking? Deep cover is that movie for me. I would avoid this one. I'm going to give this uh, you know, one and a half or two Maple Leafs. It was not good. 
Okay, I will. I mean, I love Lawrence Fishburne, but I definitely will not be checking this out. Then it seems very much of the era, very early '90s cop drama. Yeah, I was about to say it is of that era, and unfortunately, in this case, that is not a good thing. Let's move on to comedies, though. Who's funnier than Richard Pryor? This is the time to go back and enjoy some of the greats, right? Well, I'd never seen Richard Pryor and Gene Wilder, who had great chemistry together. I've seen *See No Evil, Hair No Evil*, which I love. I don't know if I got through another you, which another you know, critics hated. I believe at that point, Pryor started to feel the early onset of multiple sclerosis. But Silver Streak was their first movie together, so I finally went back and saw it. Here's the synopsis. While on a cross-country train ride, overworked book editor George Caldwell, played by Gene Wilder, begins an unexpected romance with an enigmatic woman named Hilly Burns. That's Jill Clayburgh. His vacation is interrupted, however, when he witnesses a murder for which he is then accused. The true villains kidnap Hilly, eject Caldwell from the moving train. Desperate, Caldwell teams up with Carthief Grover Muldoon, Richard Pryor. Together, they must save Hilly while avoiding the police. You get worried with comedies, right? Because they often feel so dated. Is this going to transit? This is 1976, a 44-year-old comedy. But it starts out, first 10, 15 minutes are funny. Wilder's met by Ned Beatty, who's uh, <laughs> this is a very, the uh, back of a better term, a horny, overweight businessman who tells him the reason why he goes on trains. It's a great way to pick up women. He tries to pick up Jill Clayburgh. He sends a poured a drink down his pants. And then Gene Wilder and Jill Clayburgh start talking. There's a great scene of physical comedy. Wilder's trying to get down one of the corridors. Again, there's a heavy set guy. They get stuck together. He goes into the wrong corridor. So the first 15, 20 minutes, I'm laughing along amiably. And then the plot starts to develop. And you say, okay, really? It actually feels like a very routine comedy for its time. And in fact, I wasn't laughing much at all. The writer-director is John Well. You get to the hour and six-minute mark, and I swear to God, I'm looking at the, the phone going, are you sure Richard Pryor's in this movie? I was expecting Pryor and Wilder for the whole movie. Instead, it's been a lot of Gene Wilder, who I like, but he's not really giving me many laughs because the script isn't very good. And then Pryor shows up, and thankfully, Richard Pryor saves the day. He is hilarious, particularly the scene which I have seen before. Maybe you've seen this in movie Best of Clips. He's teaching Gene Wilder how to be black. It's a little uncomfortable because he literally pulls out the blackface, but then he puts sunglasses on Wilder, puts a hat on him, gives him a stereo, and teaches him to try to dance. And uh, that scene alone features great chemistry between two all-time comedic heavyweights and Gene Wilder and Richard Pryor. And Pryor's in the movie maybe, I'm going to say it's about an hour 56. He doesn't show up to about hour six. I think he's in the way maybe 30 to 40 minutes. So I would have liked a lot more Richard Pryor, but he certainly steals the movie in a supporting role. It's a reminder of what a funny guy he was. Uh, William Thomas of Empire writes, it's hard to remember that this extremely unexceptional film was a major hit back in the 70s. Ruth Batchelor, the LA Free Press, it's a complete, total, fabulous, funny, suspenseful, dazzling, wonderful, marvelous, sexy, fantastic trip on a train. And by the way, the big ending, I keep wondering about this, with CGI so rampant today, that the ending, without spoiling it, there's like a fantastic crash involving the train. And I kept wondering, I'm like, you know, for its time, how expensive was this to actually do? Like Arthur Hiller, the director, how much effort was this to do this? But like I said, apparently it was a huge hit back in the day. And it's certainly known as a movie that was important for these guys. Brian Costello of Common Sense Media, a sex comedy, a romantic comedy, a mystery, a spy thriller, a buddy movie, a disaster movie. This movie tries to combine every bankable genre of the mid-1970s with mixed results. I would agree. Mixed results for me. I'm going to give it two and a half Maple Leafs. But... If you're a fan of Richard Pryor, Gene Wilder, there's a reason to literally go back and check out these two guys together. Uh, Joe, for you, Pryor, Wilder, you like their work? Are you interested in Silver Streak? 
I am very, very interested. I love See No Evil, Hear No Evil. If their chemistry even remotely resembles that movie, I'm a full in for this movie. Let's keep it going with more Richard Pryor, a movie called Blue Collar, which I'd never seen. Considering my love of Paul Schrader, I'm embarrassed to admit, came out in 1978. Pryor, a rare dramatic role, playing a guy working on the line. That's right. All you factory workers listening, you appreciate what's happening right now, the auto industry, how tough that is working for GM in Detroit. Well, take you back to the late 70s. You've got Richard Pryor, the great Harvey Keitel, who I'm going to talk more about in a second, and Yafit Kato. Two black, one white. Three guys, very disgruntled, very upset with their union because the union is screwing them and they're stiffing them and they're not doing their job. And so the three guys decide to collude together all three are impoverished. They are lower middle class. They're struggling to survive. Kaitel's daughter needs braces. Pryor has got three kids, yet he lies to the IRS, tells me he has six kids, which deals with a very funny scene when the IRS guy shows up and says, come on. Uh, and Yafit Kato is just living the life here as a womanizer. But all three guys, let's use a little more money. Let's rip off the union. And so they come together with a bank robbery. Uh, excuse me, not a bank robbery, really, although there is a safe involved. The scene where the guard actually surprises them and they have disguises on is flat out hilarious. But as I mentioned, it's a drama and it really makes you sympathetic towards what is happening right now in the world. So many people are losing their jobs, 10 million Americans filing for unemployment, but also what the life was like in the late 70s, particularly for auto workers and how the union at this time was a very negative presence. It was pushing these guys against each other. You know, it was very... It's very painful to see that happen. And uh, Pryor is the real revelation. Like I said, dramatic role, playing a guy who's beaten down by the system, decides to fire back, and then later on, some would say, cops out as he finds an answer to his solution. Cotto's demise is painful. Keitel is fantastic as well. So this is unlikely, Joe. Somebody would say to you, hey, have you ever seen a drama starring Richard Pryor, Yafit Cotto, and Harvey Keitel? Well, I have. It's called Blue Collar, the directorial debut of Paul Schrader, Excellent movie if you can find it. Just for that cast alone, I will be watching this movie for sure. So can't wait. That You just gave me my Saturday plans. I like it. I'm giving it four-way police. I think you'll really enjoy it and really appreciate what a time capsule that movie is. Two more movies to go. Then we're going to get to our special guest, Don Winslow. He is the author of Broken... Uh, it is a fabulous collection of stories, I'm sure. I'm being sent it as we speak, so I'll be devouring it and reading it shortly, but I'm sure it's going to be awesome. Uh, a couple more movies there quickly, though. Fingers, 1978. Thank you to my friend Ben Mankwitz and TCM. Turner Classic Movies just aired this film, so I was able to watch it for the first time. It's like the bastard stepchild of Scorsese and Schrader. I can't believe I'd never seen it before, considering my love of 1970s movies. It's about this. Jimmy, Harvey Keitel, wants nothing more than to play Carnegie Hall. He has talent and the ambition is definitely there. But Jimmy is the son of a mob boss, Michael V. Gazzo. That's right. It's Pentangeli from The Godfather Part Two. When he's not practicing piano, he's roughing up guys unable to pay their debts to his father. To ease the pressure he feels between his family obligations and his artistic ambitions, Jimmy indulges in sex and drugs, but the stress is getting to be too much. And Jimmy may ruin everything as his life spins out of control. Like I said... Like a distant cousin of Taxi Driver, alienated, lonely guy trying to find his way in the world. The premise, I should be said, is ludicrous. Like, how the hell could a guy be the son of a gangster and his mom is a concert penis? I mean, it's just like, what? And the, and the, and the mom is actually institutionalized. The dad, as I mentioned, is Michael V. Gazzo, who is always a scene stealer. In fact, there's a, quite a few Godfather uh, resemblances here. Danny Aiello is also the movie playing a gangster, of course, famously said. Michael Corleone says hello. And Dominic Cianese, 
uh, known as Uncle June from The Sopranos and Johnny Ola from The Godfather films. He's also in the movie. So it's an interesting film. It really is a movie that I would recommend if somebody who loves movies from the 70s as I do, that's why I'm giving fingers three and a half Maple Leafs. Keitel bears it all. I mean, there's a scene where he goes for a prostate exam, which is unintentionally funny and as painful as you'd expect from Harvey Keitel, who always gives it his all. It's an 88-minute movie. It's on TCM. Like I said, it's not for everyone's taste, but a, a 70s movie dealing with an outsider and with crime and trying to balance the two sides of himself, the one side of himself that wants to be a concert pianist and play Carnegie Hall, the other guy who has to deal with his gangster father. His dad sends him out on errands and tells him, you know, break this guy's legs, you know, challenge him to this. He also walks around in reference to do the right thing in bed style, which I mentioned to Joe off the top. Keitel walks around with like a little stereo. He's always playing music from the 50s and the 60s. So literally he's in a restaurant with his dad and he'll be playing One Fine Day from the Chiffons or like Summertime, Summertime. It's just, it's a real uh, beacon of independent cinema. And it's a film that I really appreciated watching. I'd never seen it before. If you read about James Toback, the writer-director, he's a disgusting creep, so I cannot support him as a human being. But I do appreciate this movie clearly was tapped into his own nexus, his own impulses, and he just spews that id all over the screen. And by the way, if you're a football fan, Jim Brown, the great Jim Brown, possibly the greatest football player ever, greatest running back ever, is in the movie. He plays a gangster who at one point elicits a threesome between one of Keitel's love interests. There's also a scene where Keitel like, forcibly assaults a woman. I mean, it, it is... It is all over the place, and the ending, I'm not sure if you're totally buying, but honestly, for the fact that it's so raw and impressionable, I would recommend Fingers. Currently on TCM, I'm giving it four Maple Leafs. Joe, I don't know. This one may be a little rough for most most audiences, but we do have one review here from Gary Arnold of the Washington Post. It's difficult to perceive where a large public might be located for an introspective movie this schematic and unappealing. How's that for a review? I really want to see this. That's a great review. I just cannot personally watch anything that James Toback has touched, so I won't be watching this one. Horrible person. Quick Google search, and Joe will tell you, as he just said, what a bad person James Toback is. Um, the Cooler, one more for you. This is about Alec Baldwin. The reason to watch this movie is Alec Baldwin. Who doesn't love Alec Baldwin? All right? Not just the Trump impression, not just 30 Rock, not just Glenn Geary, Glenn Ross, not just Malice. I am God. But The Cooler, he's only been nominated for an Academy Award once in his life, and that performance was from The Cooler, 2003. He was up for Best Supporting Actor, and he plays an imposing boss named Shelley Kaplow. The story, truly down on his luck, lonely single guy Bernie Lutz. William H. Macy works at a Las Vegas casino where he uses his innate ability to bring about misfortune and those around him to jinx gamblers into losing. That's right. He's a cooler, meaning he cools guys off with hot streaks. And Shelley, Alec Baldwin, is a guy who likes this arrangement because he doesn't want customers winning too much money. But Bertie finds happiness with an attractive waitress, Natalie Belisario, played by Maria Bello. And that's when things start to turn. All of a sudden, the cooler goes to a warmer. The reason to watch this movie, it's available right now on Stars. I just had a free preview. is because of Alec Baldwin. He plays this guy who loves Las Vegas of a certain era with the perfect balance of both machismo and anger and violence and also sentimentality. If you're a fan of Alec Baldwin, you should go check out The Cooler. Supporting cast also includes Ron Livingston, uh, Paul Servino playing one of these aging singers, Joey Fatone, that's right, Joey Fat one from NSYNC. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, is that him? Yes, it is. It's Joey Fatone playing a lounge singer who's trying to uh, usurp Paul Servino. But Baldwin, I'm telling you, man, he nails a character. The voice, the cigarettes, the look of it. You can imagine this guy being one of these mob bosses 
or Casino guys from the 1950s. And of course, if you're a fan of the movie Casino, it's almost like a cousin of that movie as well because it shows the way casinos are run today, the way the new influence wants it to be, and Baldwin's character wants to stick to the past. But he's not above being a guy who will break a guy's kneecaps, who will punch him in the face, but he also shows at times a surprising amount of tenderness and a surprising amount of heart. I am recommending this movie solely for Alec Baldwin. Three Minute Beliefs, check out The Cooler if you haven't seen it from 2003. Uh, a couple of reviews here for you. Uh, Wendy Eyed, Macy wears his habitual hangdog expression like a cheap crumpled suit that's been slept in a few too many times. It is true. Bill Macy playing the loser once again. He kind of was getting a little thin at that point. Jeff Pavier, one of my favorite film critics, Toronto star. In reconstructing Macy's equal opportunity loser persona as a romantic winner, the cooler forgets what made it star so winning in the first place. And Jay Boyer of Orlando Sentinel, a B-movie in the best sense, unpretentious, raffish, just trashy enough to be six kinds of fun without making you hate yourself in the morning. That is The Cooler. Those are all the reviews. I Trust me, we went all over the gamut on this one. Coming up next, news from the world of entertainment plus author Don Winslow. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over 3 million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not ready hour foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com All right, time now for entertainment news. And it's always good right now. Celebrities are coming together to help the world at large. NBC, ABC, CBS... Uniting for a historic global broadcast to raise funds, address the fight against COVID-19, airing Saturday, April 18th from 8 to 10 Eastern. How cool is this? One world together at home. We'll see. Jimmy Fallon, Jimmy Kimmel, Stephen Colbert host the broadcast being produced in partnership with Global Citizen and the World Health Organization. And uh, this is a phenomenal event to bring all these people together. Lady Gaga will curate the special exclusive appearances by Alanis Morissette, Andrea Bocelli, Billie Eilish, Billy Joe Armstrong, Chris Martin, David Beckham, Eddie Vedder, Elton John, uh, Idris Elba, John Legend, Casey Musgraves, Keith Urban, Kerry Washington, Paul McCartney, Priyanka Chopra Jones. Yes, I'm in. Shah Rukh Khan, Stevie Wonder. All of this, of course, educating, informing viewers about COVID-19 risks, prevention, response, and featuring cameos from all those stars. Obviously, people like to mock Hollywood Joe for being in this elitist bubble, but I like seeing the fact these entertainers are uniting to do something good. I completely agree. And, you know, there's nothing else going on right now. So I'm glad that people are coming together to raise awareness here, especially here in New York City, where there's so the hospitals are overrun. Um, this is a great cause. My question to you is, are you a Kimmel, Colbert or Fallon guy? Which one are you more excited for? I was gonna say we might do that at some point. Mel Rushmore, late night host. I like Colbert the most, the three. I think he's the most 
cutting and the most brazen, although I really like Jimmy Kimmel because he's caustic as well. I met Kimmel once. He's a great guy. He was very nice. Took a picture of my wife. So Colbert and Kimmel are, are 1A, 1B. Fallon, a distant third for me. I know he's very likable, but I just don't think he's as sharp as those other guys. He's not as incisive with the wit. He just kind of, you know, he's a nice guy who asks nice questions and the celebrities like him, but he doesn't make me laugh out loud or make me think the way Colbert and Kimmel do. I completely agree. I, I'm 1A, 1B is for me is Kimmel uh, and then Colbert. Colbert is just so, so smart. And Kimmel, I think he's the funniest just off the cuff. Um, so yeah, Fallon's a distant third for me too. But I'm excited for this special and I will be watching. I agree. Look forward to that. Also, Louis C.K. finally acknowledged the Me Too's accusations and his first stand-up special release since his career imploded. That 2017, God, that feels long ago, right? 2017 New York Times investigation detailing sexual harassment towards the comedian. The surprise special titled Sincerely Louis C.K. You can get it from the comedian's website for $7.99. He gets a standing ovation from the crowd in D.C. and then says, uh, you know, but the last couple of years. How was 2018, 2019 for you guys? Anybody else getting into global amounts of trouble? Man, that was crazy. Man, I was in a lot of trouble. Wait till they see those pictures of me in blackface. That's going to make it a lot worse because a lot of those. There's thousands of pictures of me in blackface. I can't stop doing it. I like it. I like how it feels. He later on gave the audience advice about the scandal. Ask a partner for permission and then check up on him. Uh, he did acknowledge complaints of harassment reported by the Times, most of which involved him masturbating in the presence of women he knew professionally. He said about that, I like masturbating and I don't like doing it alone. I like having people with me. So I listen. I give him credit, Joe. He did acknowledge the stories were true right away, but now he's making jokes about it. And uh, I don't know. It's just, it's just not for me. I, I know a lot of people like him and say he's funny. I'm not judging him over one chapter of his life because I wasn't really in tune to what he was doing previously. But I'm going to pass on Louis C.K. and his uh, Reformation tour. Yeah, I'm going to pass on this too. Just having done stand-up for a number of years here in New York, I know way too many young female comedians to to watch this or acknowledge it. So I'll be passing on it. I'm with you because he acknowledged abusing his power over others and causing them pain, but did not publicly apologize. So it feels like there's still a little bit of mea culpa there. Uh, one last story here before we get to Don Winslow, who's terrific, by the way. Don's got stories about De Niro. Uh, many other stories which are very funny, just but the whole process of writing Oliver Stone. Great story coming up. One more news story, though. South by Southwest 2020 is going to see the light of day after all online rather than on the ground in Austin. Amazon Prime Video teaming with the event to launch a so-called film festival collection. Filmmakers who had been scheduled to screen films at the fest were notified Thursday morning will be able to opt in. Some who already have distribution with an Amazon rival will likely choose to forego the virtual festival. Those who opt in will see their films play exclusively on Prime Video in the U.S. for the 10-day virtual fest, which Amazon will likely launch in late April. South by Southwest should have been from March 13th to 22nd. So, listen, this is a one-off event. An insider is saying the streaming giant would consider teaming with another canceled festival in the future. This is good, Joe. For all those people who make independent films who want them to be seen, now at least the filmmakers will have them seen by someone. Oh, yeah. This this is fantastic, especially for us as an audience. It being free, we'll be able to uh, have new content and things that aren't going straight to VOD. This will be, you know, cutting edge stuff that anyone can watch. So I'm all for it and I'm really excited for it. Amen. Can't wait to see that and take a listen now to our special guest. He's terrific. 
A real pleasure to welcome in New York Times bestselling author Don Winslow, who's written 21 novels, including The Border, The Force, The Kings of Cool, Savages, The Winter of Frankie Machine, and the highly acclaimed epics The Power of the Dog and The Cartel. His novels have attracted the attention of filmmakers and actors such as Oliver Stone, Michael Mann, Martin Scorsese, Ridley Scott, Robert De Niro, and Leonardo DiCaprio. Broken is out now, available online, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you get your books. It's a collection of six short novels connected by themes of crime, corruption, vengeance, justice, loss, betrayal, guilt, and redemption. With that, we welcome Don Winslow to Cinephile. Don, thanks so much for making the time today. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. I know we tried to do this a year ago, and I'm glad we're getting it done now. And, of course, the world has changed now. I just saw that you had announced that you canceled plans for a 20-city book tour, which you were going to do for Broken. But, of course, it's no time to be traveling anywhere. We're all practicing social distancing. But tell me about this virtual tour strategy you're going to do instead. Yeah, look, you know, as you said, it was a 20-city tour. And I feel very strongly about these bookstores, you know, and the readers. I mean, without the bookstores and the readers, I don't have this job that I love, right? And so we had to find a way somehow to make it work as best it can under these, you know, difficult circumstances. So we'll be linking up via various technologies and just have sessions as if I were there uh, except I'm not, you know, I'll be on a screen, but uh, listeners will be able to call in with questions and, and we'll do this the best way we can. Well, certainly I appreciate the fact you're still putting the book out there because I know some people are, you know, delaying as far as albums being released or books being released. Of course, we know how movies have come to a standstill, so I'm glad that people will still be able to get broken and get their hands on it. I want to start with The Force, which is one of the best cop books I've ever read. You know, I love Richard Price's work, and I think you guys are both two of the best writers in the world when it comes to cops and crime and that terrain. And when I read The Force, I said, that's the best book i read since Clockers. I want to read this section of the book for people just to get a taste of it. This is uh, from page 227 of The Force. Either way, Malone thinks black people die and he goes on being a cop. New York goes on being New York. The world goes on being the world. Yeah, it does and it doesn't. His world has changed. He's a rat. The first time you do it, Malone thinks it's life-changing. The second time, it's just life. The third time, Malone thinks it's your life. It's who you are. I just love your writing because I find it so, uh, in many ways, like Hemingway-esque, like it's terse. I just curious, how do you get that style down? It's almost like you're as visceral as cop life is, and that the words you know hit you like body blows. You know, listen. I think that that style follows story, right? In the in the way that form follows function, and so depending on what story I'm writing, I adjust my style to that. Now, in this particular book, and and by the way, thank you for the for the kind words. Uh, you you start big and then you pare down to the essentials there's a there's an old martial arts saying uh how do you how do you carve a tiger and the answer is you take a big piece of wood and you cut away anything that doesn't look like a tiger and and that's kind of the process with a book like the force you know first draft i just write 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 and then later on i go back and i just cut 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 uh until everything looks like a tiger <laughs> it's such a powerful book because it's like you think about how can you make that terrain fresh again and Stephen King had a great blurb which I have here on the cover of the book the force is mesmerizing a triumph think the godfather only with cops it's that good and that's why I think I remember the book it had this epic sweep to it you know Denny Malone is this cop he's a dirty cop and you've seen dirty cops before I mean look at Serpico or obviously great movies like that but you were able to make that story fresh 
How were you able to do so in terms of research? Because we'll get into the, the cartel and all that stuff in your years as far as knowing that terrain. But for the force itself, what research did you do or how did you dig in to make a story which I think in some ways could feel um, hashed out, but you made it feel fresh? Well, again, thank you. Yeah, you know, I was inspired by, by a couple of the works that you mentioned. You know, uh, funny, I was more inspired by film than by books as a kid. I can viscerally remember seeing The French Connection the first time I saw that and thinking, man, if I could tell stories like that and seeing Serpico and, and Prince of the City and those films, you know, largely, of course, are about dirty cops. I didn't think for a number of years I had the talent to write that book or the chops or the knowledge to write that book. Now, in, in terms of research, I've spent my life around cops. My godfather was a cop. You know, I grew up in, in Providence, Rhode Island, New York City, and New Orleans. And so uh, I, I knew a lot of cops. So the research for that was basically a lifetime. But specifically when I came to decide to write this book, then it was a matter of spending time with cops. And they were very gracious and kind to me. You know, I spent time on the streets with them in the precinct houses, in the bars, in their homes, all over the place. And, and they could not have been more generous and more open with me. Uh, Disney slash Fox has the force. Scott Frank has adapted. James Mangold's attached to direct it. Potentially Matt Damon attached to pay the lead role. I then read that Mangold might be directing Indiana Jones 5. And I swear, Don, at some point I saw David Mamet, who's one of my favorite writers, was attached to write the book. Can you tell me about Mamet's involvement or, or what the latest is now with the book as far as being made into something on the big screen? Yeah, sure. Um, Mamet did do the first draft, which, of course, is thrilling. You know, I'm a huge David Mamet fan. Who isn't? Uh, he did the first draft, and then uh, Scott Frank came along uh, and, and did another draft of it. So we're not quite sure where we are right now. You know, Scott just finished the screenplay, and, and we'll kind of see what's what. Well, we'll see what happens. Obviously, I can't wait to see it adapted. Uh, let's get into The Border, which, like I said, we were supposed to do this a year ago, and then I read it, and i got to be honest, Don, I get intimidated by lengthy big books, 716 <laughs> pages, and instead, once I was in, I couldn't get out because I was so wrapped up in it. And I had so many different thoughts while reading it. And, of course, I'd read The Border as well, so all of you should you go through the whole cartel trilogy, and you can learn about Keller, this unforgettable character, and, the, you know, just about the, the battles with the drugs and the cartels and the terrain. It's amazing. There's so many people I know who watch Narcos. I'm one of the few, I think, who doesn't. But when reading your book, I said, how the hell does Don Winslow know so much about the drug trade? How does he get inside of this thing? And, and, and even, you know, the Barrios and the Chain of Command and the Dan Vasquez. I mean, these characters are so strongly etched. How is it that you can really get into that drug world like no other? Well, I've spent 22 years there is kind of the simple answer to that. When I, when I first got involved with this, which seems like the Middle Ages now, with a book called Power the Dog back in the late 1990s, I knew nothing about the drug trade and, and had to learn it from the bottom up. And it was a matter of reaching out to people who then reached out to people and you develop a network. By the time I came to write The Border, you know, 20 years down the line, that network was in place. You know, I, I knew a lot of these people. Uh, I follow the day-by-day -day journalism. I talk to cops. I talk to DEA people. I talk to drug traffickers, frankly, and addicts. And so by that time, uh, for good or for ill, it was sort of my world. 
you know it, it wasn't so much a matter anymore of going out and doing you know years of research it was more a matter of just living in it and keeping up with it day by day don winslow we're talking with right now his book broken is out now available online barnes and noble or wherever you get your books it's a it's a dual feeling i have dominoes reading the border or power of the dog and the cartel and that is god this guy's a great writer and this is addictive reading and wow, it's just so thrilling seeing those characters go. But it's also very despairing because I feel like mm-hmm. the war on drugs is a war that can't be won. How do you how do you battle that pessimism, I, either personally or as a writer? Because I don't think you're a feel good author. I think, clearly, these books are about realism. Um, but at the same time, I just couldn't imagine writing them because reading them, I go, God, we're never going to win this war. Well, we never are going to win this war. We shouldn't have fought it. And the minute you defined it as a war, you lost it, by the way, because it's, it's not. It's not a war. Listen, we'll, we'll never solve the drug problem on the supply end. We've spent over a trillion dollars trying to do that. And what's the result? Drugs are more plentiful, cheaper, and more lethal than they've ever been. So until we start treating this as the social health problem that it is, and not the criminal problem that it isn't, we're never going to come to a solution. Uh, As a writer, yeah, it was tough. Look, you know, um, as I said, 22 years on this beat, um, you lose people, uh, sources, sometimes that you became quite close to, you know, are in prison or they've been murdered or they've died of overdoses. So so it, it was rough. But I don't think pessimism is a choice. Pessimism is just a suicide pact. You, you got to do something when you get up in the morning. You know, you, you can't just despair. You, you have to sort of take the next small necessary step, whatever that is. Yeah, I mean, there's so many memorable characters. Bobby Sorello is my favorite. I mean, a good, tortured, undercover cop. I mean, you, you can't do much better than that. He was such a good character in The, the Border. Oh, thank um, you. I want to talk uh, so also about the, just the movie aspect of it. Savages, which I apologize, I have not read, but I did enjoy the movie from Oliver Stone. <laughs> Can you give me an Oliver Stone movie uh, story at least, or uh, tell me what you thought of the adaptation of that book for you? Yeah, no, basically, look, I liked it. You know, now, now you know, the difference between novels and films is immense. And, and they have different needs. You know this better than I do. What I've evolved to is that they can sit side by side. One's not above another. You know, it's like kids. You know, you have a couple of kids. You love them both equally, but they're different, you know. And, and that's the story with, with me and film, I think, and, and with savages. Uh, my favorite Oliver story from this whole thing was we were out location scouting, and and my friend and agent and A-list screenwriter on his own, Shane Salerno, was driving. I was in the front passenger seat. Oliver was in the back. And we're driving right down Main Street, Pacific Coast Highway in Laguna Beach. It's kind of a misty, rainy day. And Oliver's saying, Shane, Shane, speed up. We have a lot to do. You know, you're driving too slow. And then he'd say, Shane, Shane, <laughs> slow down. I'm missing things. And at one point, right in the middle of Laguna Beach, Shane turns 180 degrees in the seat and says, Oliver, I can speed up. I can slow down. I can't do both at the same time. You know, and I grab the wheel. <laughs> so that's sort of my favorite Oliver story from those days. I could, I could tell. He's one guy who never knows exactly what he wants, uh, but I can only imagine you and Shane trying to manage uh, his moods and his rhythms. I also read here in the blurb, you've, your books, like I said, have attracted the attention of Scorsese and De Niro. Can you tell me any stories about either of those guys? 
Uh, yeah, sure. You know, um, well, they tell this story on a Netflix documentary, you know, that they were going to make the winter of Frankie machine. And then a studio executive, uh, sent De Niro a copy of a book called, uh, you paint houses, don't you as research for playing Frankie machine. And then they liked that book better. <laughs> so they did that instead. And that became the Irishman. Uh, yeah, De Niro, you know, one time I lived way out in the country, an old ranch in a little town in uh, obviously rural Southern California. And uh, the phone rings one day, and I pick it up you know, in my house, and I hear, oh, hi, Miss Put Don Winslow, please. This is Robert De Niro. <laughs> <laughs> I said, oh, wait a second, let me tell Tinkerbell. You know, I thought it was some friend of mine, you know, um, screwing around. But it was Robert freaking De Niro. And we're on the phone for about 20 minutes. And then I said, Mr. De Niro, I, I have to go. I, I volunteer at the local high school. I'm directing a play there, and I've got to be there in 10 minutes. <laughs> so I actually hung up on Robert De Niro to go direct a high school musical. Uh, but but he understood, was very gracious about it, and said, well, tell the kids to break a leg. You know, it's all good. <laughs> Hey, guys, I got a special message for Robert De Niro. He's one of the greatest actors of all time. He says, break a leg. That'll be all the motivation you need. This is like a win-win for the Gipper speech. You know what was shocking, though? It's like they didn't know him from Godfather and all of that. They knew him from Meet the Parents. <laughs> hey, anyway. the guy from Analyze This says, break a leg. Okay, yeah, thanks. no, it was shocking to me. You know, like Robert De Niro, you know, taxi driver, the Godfather, you know, on and on and on. You know. Oh, yeah, yeah, meet the parents. Okay, yeah. <laughs> oh, it's the World Cup, too. Let's talk about Broken, a collection of six short novels, like I said, going on various themes here. I can't wait to read it. Once again, the virtual tour is going to take place, and I believe one of the books, Don, is... Uh, uh, at least an homage or based in part on Steve McQueen. Tell me about that. Yeah, I, you know, I had this story kicking around in my head, in fact, for years called Crime 101. And I don't know how these things I'd not get in your head, but I had this sort of idea about what if, what if there was a confluence between Highway 101, one of my favorite roads in the world, I never get tired of driving it, you know, on the Pacific Coast Highway, and a, a set of sort of rules for crime and that you'd call crime 101 and could you pull that off and then i i just got this idea about a, a jewel thief who's so into the 60s and so into cars and he just fashions himself after steve mcqueen you know there's that t-shirt sort of decal going around now that says always be yourself but if you can't be yourself be batman <laughs> It should read, always be yourself, but if you can't be yourself, be Steve McQueen, you know, who was the embodiment of California cool. And, and in many ways, I think the personification of American cool. And I've always loved McQueen, you know, uh, Bullet, The Getaway, uh, on and on, The Thomas Crown Affair, which, you know, is alluded to, in fact, in this story. And so I thought, yeah, it'd just be fun to do that, to have a guy who, who just patterns himself after Steve McQueen and a cop out to get him who understands it, who gets it. 
Can't wait to read it, man. That That is a hell of an endorsement of anything involving Steve McQueen. I'm in. Crime 101, the last ride in particular, sound like they could be ripe for film adaptation. Before we close, Don, I always love, of course, following you on Twitter. You can follow Don at Don Winslow. And I love how critical you are of the president because clearly you're not a guy who's just going to stick to writing. You feel passionate about this country and whether or not you see that in your writing about, like I said, the war on drugs in quotes or what the president is doing. Specific to what we're all dealing with right now, this coronavirus pandemic, what has frustrated you the most or what has uh, angered you the most about the way the president has handled this terrible situation? Oh, how much time do we have? Uh, several hours? <laughs> That's why I wanted to yeah. close with it. I wanted to give you a nice open forum for it. <laughs> Look, it, it, it start at the beginning. Start with denying that this was a problem. Start with wasting six precious weeks. You know what we're going through now. What if we'd started six weeks ago? Start with using this, you know, to pander to his own image and his narcissism. Start with the, you know, the lies that go on now on a daily basis about this. Uh, about how he's more concerned with the American economy, which of course is a concern, than with American lives. But let me leave you with this. You can always rebuild business, right? You cannot resuscitate a dead person. So if, if you're going to make a mistake, make a mistake on the side of caution. If we damage the economy, that's fixable. If we kill 200,000 people, there is no fix for that. Perfectly expressed. Sorry to get work. No, you're right. It's a, it's a scary time right now. I just hope everybody's staying safe and stay quarantined. And the good news is, as you know, Don, we've got time on our hands. Let's read some books. Let's become a country of literature again. I mean, I get tired of people I see tweeting, going, oh, my God, is there anything else to binge watch? Make? Here's an idea. Pick up a book. And instead of just watching <laughs> mindless television all the time, Broken. Check it out now. A collection of six short novels connected by themes of crime, corruption, vengeance, justice, loss, betrayal, guilt, and redemption. Broken is out now. Available online, Barnes & Noble, or wherever you get your books. This was a sincere pleasure, sir. I cannot wait to read the latest and continued success and stay safe there in Southern California. You stay safe, too, and have a great day. Mount Rushmore. All right, now it's time for our Mount Rushmore. I love this idea. Movies with the protagonist's last name as the title. Mount Rushmore movies with the protagonist's last name as the title. So, you look at the list here, pretty good assemblage. Zoolander, Silkwood, Shaft, Patton, Milk, McClintock. I'm going to go with Serpico right out of the gate. Frank Serpico, phenomenal film, as Don Winslow mentioned. One of the movies that inspired him in his writing, the one good cop trying to fight the deceit and the corruption, the cinema verite, the gritty realism of Sidney Lumet's movie, and of course Al Pacino's incomparable lead performance. That's on my list. I'm also going to go with Patton. Listen, George C. Scott, for the first 10 minutes alone, won an Oscar for his performance, talking about Americans and the bellicosity which he brought to the role. For me, that's a no-brainer. I'm also going to go with a comedy. How about Bowfinger? 
Underrated movie. Steve Martin, Eddie Murphy, those guys are tremendous together. Very funny. Inside Hollywood special. Heather Graham, great. I know my buddy Rick Passmore loves that movie, as he should. Didn't in defense of about it. Bowfinger's phenomenal. How about this? A movie I've never mentioned before. Kinsey. It's about Alfred Kinsey, the sex researcher played by Liam Neeson. Uh, unforgettable scene involving one character who says he's had sex with like 27 different types of species. That's William Sadler playing that role. That movie is really interesting and honest, and it's dealt with a guy and a subject matter which generally isn't really touched upon in Hollywood. But let's talk about sex with Kinsey, Liam Neeson, uh, really good in the movie, Peter Sarsgaard as well. Uh, Laura Linney plays his wife. A biography of a man who is a lot more important than I would have at first realized. So how about that for Mount Rushmore movies, the protagonist's last name as the title. Bowfinger, Kinsey, Patton, Serpico. Just missing the cut, Lincoln and Nixon. Go ahead, Joe. How about you? That's what I love about these categories that we do is that you can get such an eclectic mix of movies and somehow fit them under the same umbrella. For me, I'm going to go... Uh, first, I'll agree with you on Patton. Love that movie. That definitely has to go on my Mount Rushmore. Um, I'll also throw on Zoolander for a comedy. Derek Zoolander, model extraordinaire, played by Ben Stiller. Absolutely adore that movie. I'll go Silkwood with Meryl Streep. Great conspiracy movie from the uh, early 1980s. And then for my last one, I'm torn between Frankenstein from 1931 just because of its influence and impact, but I'm going to go with Hook, my favorite Robin Williams film. Uh, Dustin Hoffman plays Captain Hook. I think it counts because I think his last name is Hook. So if anyone disagrees with that, you know, leave a review and tell me how wrong I am. Listen, I love the use of Silkwood in there, Meryl Streep, and getting Hook a little bit of love there. Spielberg was just crushed for that movie. People thought Robin Williams, very miscast. Dustin Hoffman, though, fantastic. I agree with you on that. Tweet us, cinephile pod, let us know your thoughts uh, with regards to our Mount Rushmore. Time now for Total Recall. The Oscars of 1991 films from 1990. Best picture was Dances with Wolves, which is an atrocity. Not one person in the last 30 years has said to themselves, oh, I've got three and a half hours in my hands. Let me go watch Dances with Wolves again. Even now in a quarantine, an unprecedented time, nobody's sitting around saying, let's watch Dances with Wolves again. Yet at one best picture, what were the other nominees, Joe? Awakenings. Ghost, The Godfather, Part 3, and Goodfellas. Well, it's obviously Goodfellas, which is one of the greatest movies of all time. That's my pick. But just think about some of those other movies. Awakenings is a phenomenal movie. I might watch Awakenings again, actually. 30th anniversary, just because of Robert De Niro and Robin Williams work in that movie. Walter Parks and Lawrence Lasker, the producers. I mean, Ghost is a joke. as a Best Picture nominee. What are you going to do, though? A hugely popular movie. And I get the fact it was romantic. And it's something different. But Godfather Part 3 is much maligned. Obviously, it's the weakest of the three, but still a good movie. It's still good enough to be one of the top five nominees for Best Picture. I mean, think about that. Think how often Godfather Part Three gets made fun of, and yet it was still up for Best Picture. There it was what deemed one of the five best from the Academy Awards. That's amazing. I don't think people realize that. But of course, my pick here, Joe, would have been Goodfellas. Completely agree with you. It has to be Goodfellas. It, it, and it's to your point, the movie that holds up the best out of all of these movies. I haven't seen Awakenings. Really excited to watch that, but definitely Goodfellas is my pick. Best director, joke, Costner won for Dances with Wolves. Who else was nominated? Francis Ford Coppola, The Godfather Part Three, 
Martin Scorsese, Goodfellas, Stephen Frears, The Grifters, Barbette Schroeder, Reversal of Fortune. Well, since I just watched Reversal of Fortune, and I do give Barbette Schroeder credit, the way he directs it is very innovative with time shifting and having a dead character in Glenn Close narrating her own life story. But obviously it's Marty. Goodfellas has been often imitated, never duplicated. Just the restless energy of that roaming camera, the usage of the music and the production design and all the different stylistic techniques. He's throwing everything at the kitchen sink at the camera. And the first hour particularly makes you fall in love with being a gangster. And of course, the climactic sequence where Henry Hill is seeing helicopters makes you realize the terrible demise of the gangster life and just how terrifying it would be and how harrowing that experience is. It's obviously Marty, but again, Coppola was nominated. Think about that. Godfather Part 3 was actually nominated. Obviously Marty, though, Joe. Uh, yeah, obviously Marty. It kind of feels like with The Godfather Part 3, it's kind of like when an NBA player is at the end of their career and they get voted into the All-Star game. You know what I mean? Uh, even though they didn't necessarily deserve it. I feel like that's kind of what happened with The Godfather Part 3. But I will definitely go with Martin Scorsese for Goodfellas. It's a good point. Like, is The Godfather Part 3 better than we realized because of these nominations? Or are you right that the movie actually wasn't great, but because of the lineage of Coppola and the movie itself, what it stood for, hey, here's a token nomination, just like, you know, when Jeter's getting his 14th All-Star selection. Like, okay, fine, whatever. Uh, best actor was Jeremy Irons, a recently reviewed film, Reversal of Fortune, as Klaus von Bülow. What else was nominated? Jeremy Irons, Reversal of Fortune, Kevin Costner, Dances with Wolves, Robert De Niro, Awakenings, Gerard Depardieu, Cyrano de Bergerac, Richard Harris, The Field. Never seen The Field. Richard Harris is Bull McCabe. I like to give love to Cyrano de Bergerac. I mean, they love Depardieu in France. He's like the French De Niro. De Niro is incredible in Awakenings. Honestly, this pains me to not give it to him, but because I just watched Reversal of Fortune again, and I love Jeremy Irons in that movie, he's so creepy and chilling. I do think the Academy made the right pick, but honestly, De Niro in Awakenings is a... I mean, just a physical performance. I mean, it's incredible what he does to his body and the, the contortions he does. I mean, it just breaks your heart. Yeah, I'll go with Robert De Niro for The Awakenings. Um, just from your review of Re uh, Reversal of Fortune, I can totally see Jeremy Irons having won that, but I'll go with De Niro for The Awakenings. I like it. How about Best Actress? This is a great one. I completely agree with the Academy. Kathy Bates won for Misery, playing Annie Wilkes. How about the scene where she hobbles James Caan? Don't worry, it's for the best. And brings that sledgehammer down with his feet between that log of wood. Incredible. I was so happy she won because, you know, horror movies don't often get recognized by the Academy. And she was an incredible villain. Kathy Bates won. Who else was nominated? Angelica Houston for The Grifters. Julia Roberts, Pretty Woman. Meryl Streep, Pope's Cards, From the Edge and Joanne Woodward, Mr. and Mrs. Bridge. I've never seen Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, although Ch pops to Joanne Woodward, of course, the better half of Paul Newman. Uh, Postcards from the Edge has some funny moments in there. Angelica Houston's excellent in The Grifters. What a really good film noir from that year. Julia Roberts, Pretty Woman. I mean, I'm not going to hate on that. Romantic comedies don't get enough love, and that's certainly an iconic performance from her. Al Pacino, by the way, turned down that movie. He auditioned with Julia Roberts and told Gary Marshall, no, I'm good. He said, Julia's a future star, but I don't want to make the movie. Kathy Bates, though, deserved winner in my view. 100% agree. Kathy Bay, she's so creepy in that movie. The movie can't happen, I think, without her. So 100% the Academy got it right this year with Kathy Bates. Best Supporting Actor, Joe Pesci won as Tommy DeVito in Goodfellas. Again, no-brainer. What were the other nominees? Bruce Davison, Longtime Companion, Andy Garcia, The Godfather Part Three, Graham Greene, Dances with Wolves, and Al Pacino, Dick Tracy. 
I mean, Pacino's hilariously over the top as Dick Tracy. He was so happy he got nominated playing big boy Caprice. He's slapping Madonna on the ass. He's yelling at people. He's like the world's largest dwarf at the time. I mean, just his face and his so cartoonish. I mean, he was really a, an excellent parody of his own acting and the fact he can go big sometimes. Graham Greene, as much as I've been mocking Dancing with the Wolves, excellent Canadian actor, uh, very moving as Kicking Bird. Garcia was the best part of The Godfather Part Three, playing Vincent, but Pesci, obviously the no-brainer here, Joe. Yeah, I agree with the with you and the Academy again. Definitely Joe Pesci and the Godfather. All right, how about Best Supporting Actress? Whoopi Goldberg won for Ghost, which is an absolute joke. I mean, I know she's funny in the movie, but come on. How the hell did Whoopi Goldberg be an Academy Award winner? That's the winner for Ghost. What else was nominated? Annette Benning, The Grifters, Lorraine Bracco, Karen, Goodfellas, Diane Ladd, Wild at Heart, and Mary McDonald, Dances with Wolves. Listen, it's got to be Lorraine Bracco. Karen, that's all we had. I mean, it's got to be, right? Good. Karen Friedman Hill, she's amazing in that movie. She showed, listen, so many mob movies always show the man's life. How about what the female goes through? Lorraine Bracco was, was sexy. She was vulnerable. She was heartbreaking. She was ferocious. I mean, she was involved. She was complicit. I mean, her narration is excellent. I mean, come on. How did Lorraine Bracco not win an Oscar? And by the way, the second pick would have been Annette Bening. She's also very sultry in The Grifters playing Myra Langtree. That's an, another knockout performance. The Grifters is really good movie, now that I'm thinking about it. With Angelica Houston and her and John Cusack is really good. But uh, Whoopi Goldberg winning, come on. should have been Lorraine Bracco. I agree. I want I want to you know, deviate, but I, I have to give it to her. It shows you how popular Ghost was. Whoopi Goldberg winning supporting actress for sure. Yeah, it's just crazy. All right. Uh, best screenplay written directly for the screen. Ghost won. Wow. Bruce Joel Rubin won an Academy Award for Ghost. What else was nominated, Joe? Alice by Woody Allen. Avalon by Barry Levinson. Green Card, Peter Weir. Metropolitan, Whit Stillman. I'll go with Metropolitan and Witt Stillman because his work is, uh, I mean, he's one of these India tours who I haven't heard from in years, but I did like, uh, you know, Last Days of Disco. So I'm going to give it like a queer achievement award. I just cannot give it to Ghost. And I've never seen Avalon. I've never seen Alice either, for that matter. Green card, Peter Weir. Is that the Andy McDowell movie? I mean, wow, I can't believe it. that seems like a pretty weak year for original screenplays. I'll give it to Metropolitan here, Joe. I, I haven't seen Metropolitan, so I guess reluctantly I'm going to go with Ghost, but... Uh, I will I will check it out for sure. So Ghost is my pick. I mean, I guess the pottery making scene is the one that is close to your heart. How about best screenplay based on material from another medium? The winner, again, this is so disgusting to me, Dances with Wolves, Michael Blake based on his novel. What else was nominated? Awakenings, Goodfellas, The Grifters, and Reversal of Fortune. My vote would have been for Nick Pileggi and Martin Scorsese for Goodfellas, adapted from Wise Guy by Nick Pileggi. But again, these are all excellent movies. The Grifters, cannot recommend it enough. Reversal of Fortune, Nicholas Kazan, adapting a book from Alan Dershowitz. Heavy on the Dershowitz hagiography, hey, but it is a good movie. But the one here that really, the screenplay, the honesty, if it wasn't Goodfellas, it should have been Awakenings. Steve Zalian, he's one of the great screeners of all time. He won an Academy Award for Schindler's List. He wrote and directed Searching for Bobby Fischer. He co-wrote Gangs of New York. He wrote The Irishman. Like, this guy's an absolute stud. The fact he was nominated for Awakenings, I, I'd forgotten that he'd actually written the script based on the book by Oliver Sacks. But I'll go with either Goodfellas or Awakenings. I'm going to go with, based on your review, Reversal of Fortune by Nicholas Kazan. Um, but you're right, Dances with Wolves. I don't know how it got this much love this year, so I'm glad we're repicking it. Yeah, I mean, I understand it in a vacuum, right? It was Hollywood's apology for the treatment of Native Americans on the screen for 
generations. I totally get that. The racist depiction of natives, you know, in John Wayne movies and John Ford movies, but that doesn't mean this should win Best Picture. Like, I mean, just, I mean, it certainly is epic in scope. There's some memorable sequences. Kevin Costner did an admirable job directing it, you know, Tatanka, all the rest of it. Like, I'm okay with a nomination, but winning that many to me is just atrocious. I mean, rewatchability has to be a factor in movies. And like I said, no one's sitting around thinking, hey, let's fire up a little Dances with Wolves. All right, thanks so much for checking out Cinephile. Uh, once again, thank you to Don Winslow, a terrific guest. Next week, another author, John Pess, is going to join us. He's got a new book on Yogi Berra. I don't know what we're going to be reviewing. Probably a lot of movies back in the time capsule. Maybe I'll talk about last week tonight with John Oliver, one of the few shows that is still continuing right now, albeit in a very different manner. Until then, thanks to my man Joe from bed And coming to you from North Jersey, I'm Adnan Burke. Thank you so much for checking out Cinephile. I'll see you at the movies. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So... At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable. It's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast.